Hello, welcome to another episode of Analyzing Mormonism. It has been ages. So a few months back, I got together with Scott, who is the host for the podcast Ramiamptum Ruminations. And together, he and I did a four-part series of a book club discussing the book No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. He has given me permission to share each of those parts on my own podcast. So this is part one of that series. And after I share all of these, I'm going to share Hugh Nibley's response to Fawn Brody's book. So stay tuned for that. So this is part one. I hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's Exmo Book Club episode is called No Man Knows My History, Part One. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited for today's episode. I have brought on a special guest. She's in the green, green room. We'll bring her in in just a sec here. But today we're going to talk about the book, No Man Knows My History. I wanted to bring on someone to discuss this with me and do it as kind of an ex-Mormon book club sort of thing. That way we can kind of bounce off ideas and have more than one perspective on the book. So to do this, I have brought on Julia with Analyzing Mormonism. Welcome to the show, Julia. Hi. So tell us as much or as little about yourself as you would like to introduce who you are. Um, sure. Um, so I'm Julia. I was born and raised in the church. I um, graduated from BYU-Idaho, which I think you graduated from there as well. Yeah, I did. What year did you go? Um, I went through 2009 to 2012. We were there at the exact same time. Wait, really? Wait, what did you major in again? I majored in English. So did I. Wait, that's so weird. <laughs> so my wife did as well. You might have had classes with her. I might have. That's so cool. I mean, I because I don't recognize you, but I mean, who knows? It was also a long time ago. Like <laughs> it was a long time ago. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and I so I, after that, I served a mission in Salt Lake, um, the Salt Lake City South and East missions. And then I got home, got married in the temple. Cool. Well, that's a small world that we were there at the exact same time. Yeah, yeah, very small. We graduated at uh, uh, 2011 and we walked at the same time. So that was kind of fun. Oh, that's fun. That's cool. Let's uh, let the listeners know where you exist in this post-Mormon space. What is analyzing Mormonism? Well, that's a really good question. Um, so I post whatever I want on my TikTok. But what I'd like to do is show the health of the church now, like the current church leaders, but also I like to show church history, um, show documents, things that maybe people don't know about. Yeah, that's basically what it is. <laughs> Posting the documents uh, was really what drew my attention to your TikTok channel. And so I followed you for a while. I just, I really like how you bring up some really obscure things and they're just always so fascinating. Yes, I love that. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> the listeners out there, if you're not following Julia, go and look up Analyzing Mormonism. She is awesome. When I mentioned last week that we we're going to be doing the book club on No Man Knows My History, I got an interesting comment that got me thinking. It reminded me of my problem that I had with the recent Rod Meldrum interview that he had on Mormon Stories. So I'll read you the comment real quick, and then 
and then I'll explain explain why it kind of bothered me. At first, this person said that it's important for everyone to read these books. No Man Knows My History, Rough Stone Rolling, Studies of the Book of Mormon by B.H. Roberts. But the last thing that this commenter said was that the second two books are from non-apostates, and they are the true histories and very well documented. This concept of anti-Mormon or pro-Mormon or things from apostates, it kind of bothers me. When you're looking at history, you, sh- you should try and be as unbiased as possible. And when you have someone who is opposed to the church, they're going to definitely throw in their opinions. And I'll talk about that. I think Fawn Brody does put in some of her thoughts that might be guessing, things that you couldn't say for certain, uh, putting thoughts or motivations into the people in the past where we don't have any evidence that they were thinking that. You know, on the flip side, those that are pro LDS, when they're writing these histories, they're doing the exact same thing from the opposite lens. I just think it's interesting. You can't really throw out one or the other. Both aspects are important for someone to come to a good conclusion of what is really the truth. And that was my biggest problem with the Rod Meldrum thing is because when he was, I don't know if you listened to those or not, Julia, and sorry, I'm kind of monologuing before we get going. Oh, you're fine. He was explaining that he would throw out any information regarding church history that wasn't pro-LDS. And so he was starting with these assumptions and then making sure everything fit those those assumptions. Um, also, I have quotes too that that uh, put the book in a, in a brighter light than what Rod Meldrum seems to give as well too. So, Oh, awesome. Yeah, let's hear him. So um, Ronald O'Barney... Um, He's the volume co-editor on the Joseph Smith Papers. He says that her book is, by all accounts, well-written. And then church historian and scientist Gregory Prince, he says that it's a great book. He says it's one of the most important books. And he's like, you can filter out her bias. It's okay. It's easy. Um, And it takes him on in in three dimensions. And I just think those are really shining critics or critiques for the book um, by active members of the church. So we shouldn't dismiss it just because it can be categorized as anti Exactly. This is this is an important book. It was really the first history of Joseph Smith that was written in a full, complete scale of his entire life. Yeah, yeah. Because before that, most of this information was kept hidden. Yes. Yeah. And this was published in what, 1845. Is that correct? Uh, 1945. Oh, that's what I meant. 1945. And so, so it was published in 1945. So she didn't have access like we do. Like I can just Google something and pull up a document. She had to go to the church archives, the church his- history places and look these things up. Like that's, that was just so, just a lot of work for her to do. It was a whole different world back then. It absolutely was. You had to go, you had to, go to the library to learn things. <laughs> I think that anybody that's eschewing documented history for whatever the reason is doing themselves a disservice to get a full picture of who the person is. Let's jump into this. Sure. No man knows my history. Fawn Brody, you did um, a small presentation last week on who Fawn Brody was. Do you, can you cover that real quick? Like, what do you know about the woman, the legend? Yeah, so Fawn Brody, she was born in 1915 in Ogden, Utah. Um, she died in 1981. Um, her uncle was David O. McKay, which is interesting because he played a significant role in getting her and her becoming excommunicated. She was born into the church. Um, she was an American biographer. Her most famous book, um, interestingly, is about Thomas Jefferson, and there was a lot of controversy surrounding that one as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
I didn't know that she that she had written any other books. That was fascinating. Oh yeah, I think she I think she wrote a few more if I remember correctly. But yeah, the Thomas Jefferson one was big. People weren't aware that he that Thomas Jefferson was um, fathering children outside of his 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 marriage. So that was really controversial. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, that's kind of common knowledge now. But I uh, I guess that would be something that people at one point in time probably didn't know. They probably tried to keep that quiet too. Yeah, yeah. I think she just shook the boat. Yeah, yeah. Wow. She's she's rocking the boat wherever she goes, it seems like. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the book was published in November of 1945, but she was excommunicated in May of 1946. So not very long afterwards. Six months later. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's fast. That is fast. That's interesting. They probably wanted to draw a clear line in the sand because this was at a time before they were being honest and open with the history. Yes. They probably were trying to draw a line in the sand as fast as possible that this was not approved material. I agree. Let's jump into this and we're, we're going to go chapter by chapter. And to the, to the listeners, we're only going to do seven chapters. We're going to do it. We're going to take it in four chunks and then we're going to go over the appendices. So we're going to do four episodes on the 28 chapters and then an episode on the appendix. <laughs> it's a lot of content to cover in a short period of time. One of the major takeaways that I have with this, and it's, it's interesting, when Fawn Brody is talking and when she's citing these events, she'll oftentimes put in what she thinks the people were thinking or their motives. So that's, that would be probably my one complaint on her writing style. But other than that, she's trying to paint an accurate picture of both Joseph Smith and the setting where all of this stuff is taking place. And I feel like that was the purpose of chapter one. Mm -hmm. She was, she was trying to place Joseph Smith clearly in a world where visions and revelations were commonplace and not only commonplace, but published in the newspapers talked about when we look back at it today, we think of it as like an isolated event when it clearly was not. So yeah, yeah, chapter one, she's just setting the stage for what's happening next, like you said. One thing I think is interesting, and maybe she says this more eloquently than I will right now, but um, people like to paint Joseph Smith as a not very educated when his parents were both teachers as well as his grandparents. And so even though he he ended school at the age of 12 after his surgery, or shortly after, I guess, and then he was working on the farm, he was he'd gone through several years of schooling he wasn't as uh, um, dumb as the people like to paint him. Yeah. And I remember, and this was, you know, just my seminary teacher that was teaching us this. Um, he taught us that it was equivalent to a third grade education. And so all growing up, the way I had internalized this was that he was no smarter than a third grader, mm -hmm. which <laughs> reading his lectures and just like understanding the way he thinks now as an adult, like reading and trying to get to know this person better. He is so much more eloquent than any third grader I've ever met. Yes. <laughs> yes. One thing, I know this isn't telling of, it, of very much, but when he died, he donated a lot of his books or all of his books to the Nauvoo Library. And you can Google that. And it's just this huge list of poetry books, of of Greek books, like the wow. different types of the Bible. I, I don't know. That just to me is a very educated person. And yes, he could have become educated, but like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem uh, to be consistent. I think he was very educated and very throughout his whole life. Well, it was a different, it was a different world than the world we live in today. They're living out in the sticks, working on a farm. 
and that was the norm, but they didn't have TV. They didn't have a lot of the things that we do for entertainment. So they would read, they would sit and tell stories. That was, that was how you filled your time. The first thing, and I'll, I'll just say a couple of things that stood out to me and I'll do them in order of the pages. Um, and you can feel free to jump in, make comments and, and cite any of the things that, that stood out to you. But on, on page four, uh, it's, t- it talks about Lucy's older brother. So Lucy Mack, Joseph Smith's mom, her older brother. And I'll, I'll just read you this paragraph from the book here. It says, actually, the Mack family was marked neither by psychosis nor by literary talent, but rather by a certain nonconformity in thinking and action. As religious dissenters, they believed more in the integrity of individual religious experience than in the tradition of any organized sect. Solomon, in his old age, fell into some kind of senile mysticism with lights and voices haunting his sickbed. Jason Mack, Lucy's eldest brother, ran sharply counter to the religious and economic traditions of New England when he became a seeker and set up in New Brunswick a quasi-communistic society of 30 indigent families whose economic and spiritual welfare he sought to direct. That stood out to me because it's a story that I had never heard before. It would be hard for me to believe that Lucy wouldn't have talked about her brother to her family. Joseph had to have been aware of his uncle Jason, who started his own church, went off into the boonies, started a communistic society. A lot of these patterns, these things that will later happen in Joseph's life, he had to have been aware of them happening for his uncle. I hadn't thought about that. I was my focus was on Stephen Mack, who gives her the dowry. Like, but yeah, you're to, that's totally true. Joseph had this influence in his life. The whole point that she was going for in this chapter was to set up New York in this time period to be a place where religious awakenings and you know restorations and new churches and angelic visitations were very normal. It was what everybody was talking about. It was happening to a lot of people. And not only that, but establishing your own religions and organizations and and going and setting off your own communes. These were things that happened. But when we talk about the church history as members while we're in the organization, we ignore or we don't, we're not aware of the fact that this wasn't as extraordinary as we're taught to believe. So you already you already mentioned this that that they were teachers. Um, I just thought it was interesting. Page five, it talks about Joseph Smith Sr. actually teaching um, to supplement their income. He was paid to be a teacher. It's silly to assume that they wouldn't have taught their kids. Even if, you know, let's say that there was never a time where Joseph Smith went to school, it would be silly to assume that his parents wouldn't have taught him them being school teachers. Right. Um, Yes. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit more about the income about the financial situations. Can I just go through the list that she that she gives? Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, so Joseph Smith Sr., he lost $2,000 in bad debts, and he also owed $1,800 to the Boston merchants. He invested all of his money in a shipment of ginseng, um, but according to Lucy, the, the agent ran off with the money to Canada, which left them penniless, and so she had to use her brother's dowry to get them out of, out of debt. And also in 1807, a man named Benaiah Woodward passed a false $10 bill to Joseph Sr., and rumors later circulated. I don't know that it's true, but that Joseph Sr. himself forged the money. Um, but then two weeks after that, a man named Abner Hayes paid Joseph um, $37 in worthless paper. 
which just like really devastated. This whole thing just devastated the family. And this is Joseph Sr., just for the listeners. Yeah, Joseph Sr., yeah. Joseph Smith's dad, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And that was that was the situation that Joseph Smith came into. His his family was already destitute and the house, you know, they didn't own the house. They were leasing the land to work it and make money. And, and they were already in a really bad financial situation from the beginning. She recounts the story of Joseph Smith not taking whiskey. And I've always thought this was funny, even as a believer. I thought it was it was so interesting that the church spins this story as Joseph Smith obeying the word of wisdom, but the word of wisdom hadn't been revealed yet. <laughs> he was obeying l- rules and laws that hadn't been given to him. That hadn't happened yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, I've always thought that was just a funny inconsistency. And I mean, that's right. not, that's not, you know, for or against the church, if you will, but that's just, it's just funny. Well, and we know that Joseph Smith drank um, oh, the day yeah. before he, he was killed and, and which it wasn't a big thing. It was. Yeah. They had, they had wine in the jail cell. Right. And I don't know why the church doesn't paint that because it, you know, it was a, it wasn't a, in a, a commandment. It was a word of, of wisdom essentially. So he wasn't doing anything wrong by, by having a, a cup of wine before, before the night was out. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. I've always thought that was funny that, uh, that he's lauded as following the, the word of wisdom, but it wasn't actually a thing yet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the latter part of chapter one, um, Fon Brody goes into detail on a number of other religious people at the time. And their stories are fascinating. There's a guy who believed that, you know, bathing was bad. There's all sorts of these other experiences. And one of the one of the key things that Brody is talking about is that each one of them, visions that they had with God or angels or whatnot, were documented in the newspapers. And when they would talk about them, the local newspapers would write articles about them. And not and write articles about the things that these people said and did. And so all of these events around Joseph Smith's time were well documented. And she's she's setting this up for a contrast between these well-documented spiritual visit visions and Joseph's that was not documented in the local newspapers. And so it's she's kind of setting up the stage both to show that Joseph Smith this was something very normal for New England at the time, and also to show that there are some really important differences between Joseph Smith and some of his other counterparts that were doing the same thing. I loved the last paragraph of chapter one. It is some of, so I'll say this, if, if, if you agree with Fawn Brody or not, she has such a sharp tongue and she is so witty in the way she writes that I'm sitting here all I'm reading and I just start laughing. I do want to read this one. And I guess I read the last one. Uh, could you read this one? Sure. The last part was, where it starts of these. Of these, yeah. Okay. Of these and other prophets, only one was destined for real glory. Jemima Wilkinson was forgotten with the, div- with the division of her property. The noise Oneida community uh, de- degenerated from a social and religious experiment into a business enterprise. And Dilks was ridden out of the Leatherwood County astride a rail. William Miller, although his Adventist are still an aggressive minority sect, never regained face after 1845, when after two recalculations, Jesus still failed to come. But Joseph Smith, a century after his death, had a million followers who held his name sacred and his mission divine. In my opinion, that was that's what she's trying to illustrate by set by establishing the setting. Is all of these other sects and 
restorationist movements that were happening all around the time, all around the same time as Joseph Smith. She's trying to emphasize that something was different about Joseph Smith. And then throughout the rest of the book, she's exploring what that thing was. I just love, I love her writing style. I think she's amazing. Was there anything else you want to talk about chapter one? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, talking about all the different uh, religions that came up, Joanna Wilkinson, Anne Lee, Isaac Ballard, just, just so many people. And Joseph wasn't unique, but he, uh, like you said, this last paragraph, he definitely was unique, I suppose, because he was able to keep his church going. Yes. It's, it's almost like she's trying to say that he was exactly what you would expect in that part of the world at that time mm-hmm. in history, but also he was extraordinary. Yes. Now, for for better or worse, he is the only one that's still talked about today. We're going to jump into chapter two. This one's called Treasures in the Earth. In this chapter, it focused on the treasure digging, the money digging. It talked about the necromantic arts. It starts with his teenage years, the first vision, and jumps to him just about to get the Book of Mormon. And the way she kind of sets this up is, is basically from a necromancer to a prophet, from a local, you know, wizard, if you will, to a religious leader. I think it's a fascinating juxtaposition that she's trying to show here. There's some really cool stuff in this chapter. Of interesting note, right early on in the chapter, this is page 17, um, it talks about these affidavits that put into a book called Mormonism Unveiled. So this guy named um, Hurlbut, so he was a disgruntled ex-Mormon, And uh, he went around interviewing people and he compiled this book called Mormonism Unveiled. And what he did is he talked to to people about Joseph Smith growing up. So I'm I'm really excited in the um, appendix to to go through a bunch of these affidavits. Later on in a couple chapters, it's important or Joseph Smith finds it important enough to leave Palmyra. And it's exactly for this reason. Everybody in this area knows who he is and they already have negative opinions of him and he can't establish his church here because they already don't like him and so that's kind of what this um mormonism unveiled book was kind of was going into that's again jumping ahead i think the book was by edie howe right was it edie howe let's see i think hurlbut was one of the people that she that they quote from disgruntled ex-mormon hurlbut went around palmyra and manchester soliciting affidavits from more than 100 persons who knew joseph smith um, they were then they were used, but you're right. Hurlbut got the affidavits and he gave them to Edie Howe. Right. Okay. Yes. Okay. I was just clearing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. So I'm excited to kind of, to go through some of those later on when we, when we get to that in the book. Yes, me too. Yeah. There was, um, a response from Joseph Smith. It was in, uh, the Latter-day Saints messenger and advocate. This was a church newspaper at the time. When these affidavits about Joseph Smith came out, they had to have a response about them. Joseph Smith doesn't deny anything that the people said in this. He just basically says, I was a kid. I had lots of vices and follies. And that was, that was his quote. As is common to most or all youths, I fell into many vices and follies. It's interesting that he, in this apology that they put in the uh, Latter-day Saints Messenger and Advocate, that was from 1834 in November. He doesn't deny anything that's said about him in these affidavits. He just says that he was a kid. I love that. This is a little off topic a little bit, but one thing that surprised me was the cause of Alvin's death. Um, I didn't realize it was an overdose. I didn't realize that medicine for his stomach um, 
if he took too much of it because the doctor prescribed too much. So I just thought that was really interesting. And that really devastated the family to have him die. You know, in, in any family that's experienced some trauma, that sort of thing doesn't go away. And whether it's talked about or not, it's something that's present in the family for the rest of your life. Another thing I think Brody notes is that um, after he died, I think it's 1823 or four, um, but the family attends the Presbyterian church, if I'm not mistaken, which to me, if if your son comes to you in 1820 and says that all the religions are wrong, <laughs> why, why join? I know they needed comfort, but... Yeah, and interestingly, I didn't I don't think I wrote the page number down on this, but their name their name was on the records of their local Presbyterian church until 1829. Another thing I found interesting was she talks about um the removal of Alvin's body because there was Oh yeah. There was a I guess a theory that Joseph needed to take Alvin with him to go get the plates and so there was he had passed away. So rumors were going around that um, they were taking his body out of the grave. And so Joseph Smith Sr. publishes a news article. I think it's 1824, if I'm not mistaken. And he goes and unburies his child to see that it's to see that he's still there. And it says for a week he kept this article going in the newspaper. And I just thought that was really interesting. This idea of necromancy was was definitely a theme. Well, and then they they went and dug it up to prove that it was still there, right? <laughs> Which you'd think that you'd see that the dirt was not disturbed, but yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe it was too soon. Well, if you believe in slippery treasure, I guess you could believe in slippery corpses. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> she goes over, and I said this briefly a little bit ago that she was setting this up for all these other newspapers. And this is page 22 and 23 for those that that have the book and want to go and read it at home. Brody sets up the world where other spiritual visitations were happening and the local papers were covering them. People were talking about seeing angels or seeing Jesus or the Lord. And all of these are documented in their local newspapers, secular newspapers, not like a religious pamphlet. There was a man named Abner Cole who um, was writing about Joseph Smith, and he went by a pseudonym when he was writing, uh, Obadiah Dogberry. One of the things that he wrote, interestingly, this is in February... Dogberry, 1831? Uh, yeah, 1831. Dogberry is talking about Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith's visions. And he says this, It is well known that Joe Smith never pretended to have any communion with angels until a long period after the pretended finding of the book. That was from the Palmyra Reflector. The people around Joseph Smith, the locals, whether he had it or not, I'm not saying that he did or did not have a vision. Nobody knew about it. This was not something that he went to a preacher and talked about. This was not something that was published in any sort of way at all. So that whole aspect of the story, it doesn't track because nobody knew about it. That for sure is... A, a big deal. Like I started making a list of things that would seem to point out that Joseph didn't have an 1820 vision, um, such as there's the, the newspapers didn't talk about it. Um, his family's still part of the Presbyterian church. It wasn't published in the church history books. And I don't even know, did Fawn Brody have access to the 1832 first vision? I don't think that she did. I think if she had, she probably would have mentioned it at some point in this chapter when she's covering the first vision time period. 
this was probably locked up in the in the vaults at the time. That's what I, I think she if I was listening, I watched an episode on her history and I think she was trying to get access to it. Um, but then she kept being um, kind of shooed away by the brethren. So I don't think she knew about it. So on page 24, you're talking about the records in the church. This is the footnote. It says records of the Presbyterian Church in Palmyra as filmed in 1969 by Reverend Wesley P. Walters. These records, um, they list, and this is in in, uh, 1830 that they list this, but they list Lucy and her sons, Hiram and Samuel. They were suspended from the church for neglecting public worship and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for the last 18 months. So that's why they're drawing this 1829 or 1828 time period of when they stopped attending. Even assuming, you know, let's say the vision happened, Joseph Smith did see God and he told his whole family about it. They still attended the Presbyterian church for nine years. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's where the issue is there. I think the record is that Joseph kept, stayed aloof from all the religions, but yeah, it's really interesting that his family continued going. One thing I also wanted to point out is she talks about Joseph's, she talks about Joseph Smith's physical description. She talks about him, his large nose. He was a very handsome guy. Um, he had like you know, kind of golden hair. But one thing that I thought was interesting is that she says he has a pale face when speaking passionately. And so like, I just thought that was interesting. People can see that as sort of a, a Moses experience when it's not really a vision or it might not be a vision. It could just be that he's just passionate. Where basically Joseph is saying that his seer stones, he didn't, he never saw anything. That's the end of the chapter. So uh, Peter Ingersoll, if I'm getting his name right, um, he is witnessing this event because he's just kind of sitting there in the carriage, I, I assume, waiting for them to figure out what's going on. And Isaac Hale, Emma's father, he, he says, you have stolen my daughter and married her. And I would much rather followed her to her grave. You spend your time in digging for money, pretend to see in a stone and thus try to deceive people. And Ingersoll says that Joseph Smith wept and acknowledged he could not see in a stone now, nor ever could. And I just thought that was was really interesting, this whole quote right here. And then he promised to to give up those old habits. One of the things, so my mind always goes in, in all sorts of directions. The question popped into my head when I was reading this is, how many of his marriages were not done in secret? Well, oh, that's a really good question. So he he elopes with Emma. Yeah. So that's kind of in secret, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's like a pattern, and so I, I'm I'm interested to see as we as we get further into this is were any of them above board and in front of it, you know the whole community, if you will. That's true. I had not I had not put Emma with that category into that category. So and so that's all I got for that chapter. This one is called Red Sons of Israel. Up until this point, I think Brody has done a really good job of being fairly impartial. She outright lumps him in with other frauds. And so I think she's kind of showing her bias on this one a little bit, but it's it's interesting. What she points out is the difference, and this is kind of the point of, that I took from this whole chapter, the difference that she notices with Joseph Smith and these others that she's mentioned previously, all of these other people that were having experiences and revivals and leading organizations she points out to Joseph Smith's creativity. She explains that that's the key difference why he was successful when none of his other counterparts were successful in their endeavors. And so she, to, to illustrate that, she goes into the, the stories that Lucy tells of him 
talking about the mound builders and these mound builder myths saying, and this is a quote from Lucy Smith. She says, during our evening conversation conversations, Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this con- continent, their dress, mode of travel, and the animals upon which they rode, their cities, their buildings, and with every particular, their mode of warfare and also their religious worship. This he would do with as much ease seemingly as if he had spent his whole life with them. And she's she's saying that this occurred, and this is from a biograph, biographical sketch that she gave, and this occurred before Alvin's death in 1823 is when she was describing that these things were happening. The church brags that Joseph Smith translated the book in 65 working days, if I'm remembering correctly. But she's she's saying here that Joseph was telling these stories that became the Book of Mormon since before 1823. So this this is not just a a two month thing. It's a many years of. We'll we'll get to that when we because we go we um, in these seven chapters it does get to the translation process. But Martin Harris also says that he transcribed a third of the published version of the Book of Mormon. We'll get there. Maybe that's a teaser for a, for a, a little bit later on in the episode. <laughs> um, so one thing I did want to say on a personal level is as an active member of the church, I was part of a, a small group called the Mound Rovers. And we, I would, it was with my dad and I and some, some other members, and we would travel throughout the U.S. And I didn't go on very many of these um, adventures, but we would go to these, these burial mounds and we would just walk up them and we would um, try to... Um, Imagine that they were Lamanites and Nephites. We were very much Rod Meldrum um, kind of followers. Um, and I didn't realize that that was all the rage also in the 1820s. Like people were trying to figure out where these mound builders came from. And there there was a little bit of racism with it because they just assumed that yes. the Native Americans couldn't have done something so extravagant. But um, yeah, we're still dealing with that sort of racism today. Interestingly, in and this is page 37 and 38, it talks about conversations that Joseph Smith had, again, with this Ingersoll that uh, we mentioned a minute, a minute ago. In a conversation that Ingersoll had with Joseph Smith, he, he's quoted as, as saying, Notwithstanding, he told me he had no such book and believed there never was any such book. Yet he told me that he actually went to Willard Chase to get him to make a chest in which he might deposit his golden Bible. But as Chase would not do it, he made a box himself of clapboards and put it into a pillowcase and allowed people to lift it and feel it through the case. He he had a case that he would carry around with him and keep in um, in some sort of, uh, in a pillowcase that he says here. Purportedly from Ingersoll, Ingersoll says that that Joseph told him that he never had a book and that it was just an empty case. Whether Ingersoll is a reliable witness or not, I guess I'll let that be up to the listener. But then you also have Willard Chase saying almost the same sort of thing. And again, you know, for those that have the book on page 38, yeah, he, he goes into that. And, and another, another one of Joseph's friends says the exact same thing to corroborate that he didn't have any such book. One of my favorite things in this one, one of my favorite stories of this was Willard Chase's sister on page 41. Sally, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So this is page 41. Everyone in the area has has heard these stories by this point, that Joseph Smith has this golden Bible. And Sally Chase is also a diviner or, you know, has a peep stone and she tries to see things. Well, she looks into her stone, which was like a, a jade or some sort of green rock, I think. And 
she divines where the Book of Mormon is being held. And she and a group of people, they go and they find this case that Joseph Smith had and they pry it open because it was nailed shut. Apparently they pry it open and they find it empty. And when they find it empty, but Joseph Smith says that, uh, that he was inspired to open the box, hide the plates, and then renail the box shut to keep it hidden from Sally Chase. So they find, they catch him not having anything in this box. And then he tells the story that he was inspired to move it and hide it. That's really convenient. <laughs> it is convenient. And it's a little suspect. Yes. Yes. The hardest thing for me as, as I was reading a lot of these stories and this, you know, doing some early research before I made the decision to leave, it wasn't any one thing that convinced me that it was a fraud. It was that all of the mounting evidence showed that the stories I was taught were not what really happened. This time period is right after Joseph Smith. Um, this is in the 1820s. This is still um, late 1820s at this point. Joseph Smith and Emma are kind of going through some hard times. And Isaac Hale offers, offers them a chance to come live with them and work on the farm and start an honest living and become, you know, an honest man again. And at the time, Joseph Smith, uh, is st he's still trying to translate the plates. At this time, he does have the Book of Mormon or is purported to have, you know, something. And he's keeping this, this box with the plates in Isaac Hale's home. And Isaac Hale demands to either see the book himself or they have to keep the book somewhere else. They cannot keep it in his house if he can't see it. Up until this point, he, ha he had been telling people that if you see it, you will be struck dead. Anybody who sees that who's not supposed to will be struck dead. And so here you have Isaac Hale calling him on his bluff and, and saying, show me the book. They refuse to show it to him and they move it to somewhere else. Granted, they did show him the box. And here's what he says. He says, I was shown a box in which it, it is said they were contained, which had to all appearances been used as a glass box of the common window glass. It was allowed to feel I was allowed to feel the weight of the box. And they gave me to understand that the book of the plates was in the box into which, however, I was not allowed to look. I inquired of Joseph Smith Jr., who was to be the first who would be allowed to see the book of plates. He said it was a young child. After this, I became dissatisfied and informed him that if there was anything in my house of that description, which I could not be allowed to see, he must take it away. If he did not, I was determined to see it. After that, the plates were said to be hid in the woods. I don't know. It's, it's so funny. I always, when I was in the church, I thought of Isaac Hale as this villain character. But he just seems so level-headed, mm -hmm. and I just I just love <laughs> the way that he's he's writing. <laughs> uh, she does go into the view of the Hebrews, and she talks about um, some of the ideas around um, that time period. That us now looking back, we weren't aware of what this um, cultural ideas were of the world, because we we view the world way differently than they did. And so when we read the Book of Mormon, it's this novel idea that it was Israelites coming over. But at that time, that was what most people thought. So I've read View of the Hebrews. Oh, really? And not knowing. Yeah. So not knowing that it was bad scholarship, I was like, this is like proving the Book of Mormon is true because it's telling you it's it's the story of these these Hebrews coming over and how they would have um, all these Hebrew traditions, Hebrew language, Hebrew writing, things like that. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this book just proves that the Book of Mormon is true. And now, you know, knowing that it's bad scholarship, 
um, doesn't really hold up, but that was the, the idea at the time that this was, that this was happening, that they were the lost 10 tribes, these native Americans here. Well, and Brody, Brody words it like this. And I, I highlighted this because again, I, her, her writing is just so excellent. She says, thus where view of the Hebrews was just bad scholarship. The book of Mormon was highly original and imaginative fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Fawn Brody mentions this letter from Lucy Mac Smith to her brother and his wife. And in it, she's talking about the book of Mormon. And um, this is just after it was published and she's admonishing them to read the book of Mormon um, how Joseph was able to get it and translate it. Um, but it, it, uh, this is the letter was January 6th, 1831. And she says nothing about the first vision, which I think is interesting. Like, why wouldn't she plug that in there to help, help them be converted? It's very telling that, that there was no contemporary sources at the time that would corroborate anybody knowing about the first vision vision. So let's move on to chapter four. This one is called A, Mar- a Marvelous Work and a Wonder. And this we jump into the translation process. As I, uh, we said just a little bit ago when we were talking about the translation process, um, for those that have the book, if you go to page 62, there's an interesting quote from Martin Harris. And this, this talking about this cl- the claim that, that Joseph Smith did this whole project, that it was finished in April 7th, 1829, 275,000 word manuscript. Just this a massive book. What uh, the the church says is this far beyond his natural ability to achieve such a, a feat in such a short amount of time. But they don't address this from Martin Harris. And so I'll read. Uh, it's the the first paragraph on on page uh, sixty two. It says it is clear, however, that Martin Harris wrote part of the new version before Cowdery replaced him. Since in, since in March 1829, Joseph had a revelation for Harris, which said in part, when thou hast translated a few more pages, thou shalt stop for a season. Harris may have been taking diction for as much as four months, and he claimed in later years that he had been scribed for nearly a third of the published Book of Mormon. Oh, you said that earlier and my mind was like, because I always think of the lost 116 pages being the majority of what he translated and, and only saving a few pages. But no, a third is a significant number. Yes. Yes. It's a third of the published book. And that's what he claims to have transcribed for Joseph Smith. It could be that he's, you know, trying to, to talk up his position as a, uh, a scribe in his later years. What Brody is trying to say here is she's trying to corroborate what Harris is saying by what's in Doctrine and Covenants, um, section five, verse 30, where it's talking to Martin Harris in the time after, you know, in the time after the 116 pages, where it's saying that you'll translate some more and then you'll stop for a time. So it's, she's trying to illustrate that whether it was a third or some other percentage of what we have as the Book of Mormon, he did transcribe some of that before Oliver Cowdery came on board. So Joseph Smith had a lot more time to think about what he was writing or to process or translate, whatever it is. It's just the time period that they're saying is not accurate when they make that claim. So I also wanted to talk about Charles Anthon. So I don't have anything underlined in here because I listened to it. But so the, the story goes that Charles, that uh, Martin Harris brings this character's page to Charles Anthon who is a linguist, I suppose, someone who's well-versed in this. And he um, shows him these characters and Charles Anthon says, yes, these are authentic characters. 
and he gives him a certificate. And then on his way out the door, he says, where, where did you get the, these characters? And he says, they were from an angel and the angel gave Joseph these plates. And then he supposedly takes this certificate back and tears it up. And then there's this, the famous quote where he says, I cannot read a sealed book, but Charles Anthon, which the church doesn't quote ever. It seems as Charles Anthon came out twice. I'm um, speaking against what Martin Harris did. Um, I think it was, was 1832 and, eight, and in the 1840s, I think. 1834 as well. 34. Yeah. Okay. So I know it was twice. And he says that he didn't say that. He says that he was afraid that Joseph was conning him. And he says, you, you got to get out. You have to um, save your farm, save your money. And then Martin Harris comes back a second time saying, hey, I have this published book. Will you buy it from me? And he says, um, I'm not interested. And then he kind of warns him again, you know, this, I don't think this is real. This isn't, these aren't real characters. He describes it as a hoax upon the learned or a scheme to cheat the farmer of his money. That's on page 52. Interesting thing. I don't know if it's in here, but he also says, uh, can I see this record? And he's and Martin Harris says, no, if anyone lifts up, if anyone sees it, they'll, they'll die. And he says, if you, if you take the curse on you, then I'll open it. And Charles Nathan <laughs> says, sure, sure. You give me the curse so that you can show me the book. <laughs> So one one of the things that um, that I found really interesting that I didn't know before, but on page fifty four, and I, I won't uh, read the quote, but on page fifty four they talk about punctuation and the sentence structure of the manuscript, and in the very first edition, there was no punctuation at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Apparently, like the first two hundred sentences. 140 of them started with and again, whether you're a believer or not, so much information of a sentence is handled by punctuation, comma placement, period placement, you know, the punctuation in a sentence is how you can delineate exactly what something means. And if there was none, whether again, whether you're a believer or not, if there was none, how can we be certain? that the punctuation in the scriptures today is how it was translated. Um, I also want to talk about Joseph senior's dream. Yeah. Yeah. They mentioned that. Uh, I think that's here. So it's on page 58. Yeah. So, so um, Joseph Smith senior has a dream. Um, I don't know when she says he had it. Do you, is there a date for that? Cause it's published in biographical sketches. Yeah. And they've mentioned, she mentioned that book a couple of times. I don't know when, I don't know when that book was published, but she did talk about when the dream actually would have taken place. Would it have been, I'm assuming it'd be before 1830. Yeah, it would, it would be before I'd have to, I'd have to look that one up because she describes in the same book. She, that's when she describes Joseph Smith as telling the mound builder stories. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, can I, do you mind if I read some of yeah, this? Yeah. 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 So I think the listeners will be familiar with um, Lehi's vision in first Nephi chapter eight. And so I'll just read Joseph Smith's um, vision or dream. He says, I thought, I thought I was this thus traveling in an open and desolate field, which appeared very barren. There was a tree such as I'd never seen before. I found it delicious beyond description. As I was eating, I said in my heart, I cannot eat this alone. I must bring my wife and children. I beheld a beautiful stream of water, which ran from the east to the west. I could see a rope running along the bank of it. And he saw a spacious building filled with people who were finely dressed. And they were pointing the finger of scorn at them. So just all of this seems so familiar with, with uh, 
first Nephi chapter eight. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the exact same story. One of the other things that she covers with some detail are the parallels between the stories in the Book of Mormon and the stories from the Old Testament and the New Testament. She draws some interesting parallels and she makes the conclusion or the assertion that none of the stories in the Book of Mormon are unique or are not inspired by stories that already exist in the scriptures. Um, and the other thing she does, she's, she's so harsh in some of her descriptions, but, <laughs> but when she's, when she made these comments, it made me kind of rethink about some of these stories. She describes all of the characters in the book of Mormon as being flat and not dynamic. And so for, for those that aren't familiar with the, that terminology, a dynamic character in a story is one who makes a change in their personality or, or who they are. They learn, they grow, they become better or different. The only characters in the Book of Mormon that go through that change are clearly inspired by the Apostle Paul. But none of the other characters have any sort of dynamic qualities to them. Everyone else is a flat character. They start out good, they end good. They start out bad, they end bad. There's no change. There's no nuance to the characters in the Book of Mormon. I love that. <laughs> um, also, there's a sentence um, she's just writes so beautifully, Fawn Brody, and she's talking about, I just love this sentence. She's talking about the Book of Mormon and how she says, but the prose style was unfortunate. Joseph's sentences were loose jointed like an earthworm hacked into segments that crawled away alive and whole. I just love that wording. <laughs> oh, yeah. She is so witty. She is so witty. So let's let's jump on to the next chapter. We're uh, we got we got three more to cover. Let's let's <laughs> do what we can. Um I feel like I could talk about this forever. Oh, I know. I'm the same way. And I'm skipping a lot of the notes that I have. This chapter, chapter five, she goes over the story of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. And she's talking about the, um, the beginnings of what led to the establishment of the church. One of the things that she points out very early on in the chapter is she says this, this is page 69, the Mormon church has exagger exaggerated the ignorance of its prophet since the more meager his learning, the more divine must be his book. And so that's, that's kind of what she's trying to set up at the beginning of this and, and what she's done up until this point in the story. She's setting Joseph Smith up not as an incompetent bumpkin, but as a creative person, someone who is skilled with oration and, present, and presents himself with charisma. She's trying to paint a, a picture of him of who he actually was, according to the people from his time, not as an ignorant country kid. Also, in talking about the three witnesses, um, she on page 77, she says, according to the local press of the time, the three witnesses all told different versions of their experience. Yes. Yeah, I went and looked this up and and the, the story there is so different. Martin Harris, he's he's uh, he's in the Waterloo, which is like 20 or 30 miles away from Joseph Smith's house. And he he's out the script. The gold plates are in the middle of the field and Joseph takes him out there and they pick it up and he handles it. And that was his that was uh, his witness of the plates. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and again, it's one of those things where whether you believe in the church or not, when you look at what we have documented from the individuals that were there that lived this. The events do not match up with the stories that were told. And this is this is one of those really important ones. 
this sort of a fact has to line up for the story to be true. One of the things that she also mentions is that uh, Martin Harris throughout his life embellishes these stories. They change throughout time. They kind of make him an unreliable witness, but it's one of those things where the church kind of wants their cake and they want to eat it too, where they want to have it both ways, where they can rely on him when it's convenient. But then anytime that he says something that doesn't match up, they ignore what he says. Um, also in this, at this time period, Martin Harris's wife left him. I didn't know that leading into this, but she, she left him uh, during these events when the, when the church was, was first getting established. And that was on page 80 that, that that happened. One of the other things that was interesting in this one is they're talking about the, the eight witnesses. A Mark Twain quote. Is that what you're talking about? The Mark Twain quote is fascinating. <laughs> the governor of Illinois, Thomas Ford, um, many of these, of these first eight witnesses, they described these events when they told the governor the way these events happened. Um, it's a different story than what I was familiar with. This is how it's described. And the source for this one is um, the history of Chicago from 1845. It says, uh, he assembled them in a room and produced a box, which he said contained the precious treasure. The lid was opened. The witnesses peeped into it, but making no discovery for the box was empty. They said, Brother Joseph, we don't see the plates. The prophet answered, the prophet answered them, O ye of little faith, how long will God bear with this wicked and perverse generation? Down on your knees, brethren, every one of you, and pray God for forgiveness of your sins and for a holy living faith which cometh down from heaven. The disciples dropped on their knees and began to pray with the fervency of their spirit, supplicating God for more than two hours with fanatical earnestness, at the end of which time, looking again into the box, they were now persuaded that they saw the plates. So I, I'd heard, you know, some of the problems with the story of the three witnesses, but the eight witnesses, it's also problematic because they didn't actually see them with their physical eyes either. Yeah, this this chapter, I mean, if you're if if you're looking for one that's that's really going to be damning for the church, you can go and read chapter five of No Man Knows My History. And it is full of stories, missed prophecies. It's full of the real stories of the witnesses, and it puts into question their credibility. Even the most generous interpretation of what is described in this chapter is problematic for a believer. In my notes here, I have um, somewhere Fawn Brody alluded. She said the Book of Mormon um, was filled with predictions that had already taken place. And I thought that was really interesting. Okay, so let's jump into chapter six. This one's called The Prophet of Palmyra. And again, I'd mentioned a little bit earlier in this, what Brody goes over in this chapter is that the people of Palmyra, the locals, knew Joseph when he was a necromancer. They knew him when he was doing the treasure digging and all of the rituals and folk magic of the time. And they could not see him transition as a prophet because they only saw him as a treasure digger. And it made it very hard for him from a very early, early time. And this is, this is page 88. He started identifying himself with some of the martyrs in the scriptures. And this is, this is something that he said um, in a speech at Nauvoo. It says, they spit upon me, point their fingers at me, saying, prophesy, prophesy. And thus did they imitate those who cru crucified the Savior of mankind, not knowing what they did. These insults, they, they, and this is what Brody says, they magnified the significance of his mission. Um, it, at this time period as well, and, and uh, Brody goes over this on, on page 91, this was when Joseph Smith stopped using the stone. And she talks about 
this transition and she tries to she kind of justifies it and she puts her interpretation on it and we don't have what joseph smith we don't have any writings of his for why he made this transition but she assumes that the stone shared authority with him in a way that he didn't like and so she actually has a quote from david whitmer and she, she says uh, david whitmer says Joseph gave the stone to Oliver Cowdery and told me as well as the rest that he was through with it and he did not use the stone anymore. He told us that we would all have to depend on the Holy Ghost hereafter to be guided into truth and to obtain the will of the Lord. The revelations after this came through Joseph Smith as mouthpiece. That is, he would inquire of the Lord, pray and ask concerning a matter and speak out the, the revelation. He saw the role that the stone was filling and he wanted that power and authority to rest on the leader of the church. And so they stopped all mention of the stone. And from this point on, this is in the 1830s, from this point on, it was never mentioned again. But it did come up because other people were still using stones. And that's in, that's in the, the Doctrine and Covenants. But. Another account says that the, seeing the visions, putting the stone in the hat and seeing the visions hurt his eyes. And so he wanted to, it was giving him ill health. So he... That's another reason he stopped. There's also a story on 85 that I'd never heard before. This was given by Mary Elizabeth Rollins. And so they had early cottage meetings and Joseph was talking and he stops talking. And she says, suddenly he stopped and seemed almost transfixed, transfixed. And he was looking ahead and his face outshone the candle. Joseph says, brothers and sisters, do you know who has been in your midst this night? And one of the Smith family said, an angel of the Lord. Joseph did not answer. And then Martin Harris, who was, must have been sitting in the front row, throws himself at Joseph's feet and says, I know it was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Joseph put a hand on Martin's head and answered, Martin, God revealed that to you. And I just have never heard that story before. I mean, it sounds, it, he sounds like from all of these accounts that he was such a charismatic leader. He could read the room. He could say, it sounds like people were just swept up by his charisma and his ability to speak. Yeah. Brody says that he could captivate an audience for hours and he can make them laugh and cry. Um, and it was just, just very charismatic. On page 95, she talks about Sidney Rignan joining his whole congregation converted with him. And what she mentions here, and she's kind of alluding to some of these, the, the prophecies that, that will happen down the road and, you know, the announcement of where the new Jerusalem or Zion would, would be located which she says that it was inevitable, this is the bottom of 95, it was inevitable that Rigdon should hear snatches of gossip about the young prophet's colorful past. Joseph boldly suggested that he go south to interview the magistrates at Colesville and South Bainbridge who had recently acquitted him. The new converts, the new people that were coming into town, they were joining the church and they were you know, getting to know the neighbors and they quickly learned that the neighbors did not like Joseph Smith and they told all sorts of stories about him. Brody implies that this was the impetus for them to move from Palmyra. Pretty sure that Joseph Smith Sr. was in prison at this time as well because of the debts that he had. Oh, yeah. One of the other things that she mentions in here on page 94, is she talks about this concept of the skin changing and she she talks about it and, you know, in her terminology actually, you know, comes off as a little racist as well. But again, you know, this is from a different time. But she, she talks about this concept as not being invented by Mormonism and that this was a concept that already existed in New England at this time. This was something, this was an idea that many people held. And so it's interesting. A lot of the times 
um, those that deconstruct and, you know, they, they find out about some of the racist past, they ascribe all of the blame to the church. But part of this is because of the culture from where Joseph Smith came from. So yes, yes, they perpetuated some of these really harmful ideologies, but some of them were given to them and they, for them to perpetuate. Yeah. That's all I got for this chapter. Yeah, I didn't have a lot for chapter six. Chapter seven was one I was super fascinated by. Yes. Chapter seven was really interesting. Now, this one is called The Perfect Society and the Promised Land. What did you have on chapter seven? Well, so there's stories in here that I'd never heard before. So the one I had heard, Joseph Smith, on page 102, he he heals a woman's hand. Let's see. Does it give her name? Oh, yeah. Mrs. Johnson. This is a gathering they're preaching, they're talking, there's a bunch of members there. This woman, Miss Johnson, is presented as having a lame arm, and they ask if he can cure her. And then that goes into this. Yeah, so it says, Joseph sat silent, but some moments later, when the question had been almost forgotten, he rose and strode across the room. Taking her useless hand in his, he said solemnly, Woman, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command thee to be whole, and immediately left the room. And the Campbellite preacher says, that uh, Mrs. Johnson and I once lifted it up with ease. So she was healed. And I like that one. I feel like I've heard that story before. I think it's even been depicted in some of the church films. What Brody's doing here is she's presenting the stories of where he was successful in these miracles and these, these amazing feats. But then she quickly shifts to stories where it didn't work. And those were the ones that I hadn't heard. People here, and this is page 104, people all around are hearing these stories of Joseph Smith healing. You know, he's this new preacher coming into town. And there was a guy, there was another, there was a Campbellite preacher named Hayden that um, came to Joseph and was demanding a miracle and kind of being belligerent to him. And and when I read this, I, I don't know, it just kind of shows to how confident, but also how witty Joseph Smith was. <laughs> And Joseph, and this is Joseph talking, says, well, what will you have done? Will you be struck blind or dumb? Will you be paralyzed or will you have one hand withered? Take your choice. Choose what you please. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it shall be done. (laughs) And uh, Hayden says, that is not the kind of miracle I want. Hayden protested. Then, sir, said Joseph, I can perform none. I am not going to bring trouble upon anyone else, sir, to convince you. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I just think it's fascinating. It's a type of man that just wasn't presented to me. You know, it, it, this it's giving us a full picture of the type of person that he was with both successful healings, unsuccessful ones, but also by being kind of this cocky and confident preacher. Anyway. Yeah. So in 112, on page 112, they there's um, three non-miracles, I guess. Yeah, I think this is Booth. And, but, and she does say, if it's to be relied upon. Oh, yes. So, but at this point, if Booth's account is to be relied upon, it would seem that Joseph was so excited by the return of his gift for miracle making that he lost all discretion. Seizing a convert's hand, which had been crippled by an accident, he cried, Brother Murdoch, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to straighten your hand. And he tugged at the stiffly curled fingers. Again, he demanded it, but the fingers merely returned to their old distortion. So there's one that doesn't work out. So he says, um, Joseph, he quickly turned to an old man lame in one leg and ordered him to rise and walk. The man took a step or two and then his faith failed. Now a father brought in a dead child whom he had refused to bury until after the conference. Yeah, yeah, this one is really impactful. 
Okay. The most earnest and frantic prayers left the tiny gray body motionless. Joseph found it impossible to reproach the parents for lack of faith, since they were the last to be convinced that the child could not be made to breathe again. Finally, numb and desolate, they turned on the elders and reproached them bitterly for having advised against medical aid. A chill spread over the whole conference. What what they did later say is that, um, and this this was them explaining why it didn't work later, is they said that the the miracle they were trying to do it um, on unhallowed or the land that they were doing it on was not consecrated and that's why they couldn't perform the miracle of of raising the girl from the dead oh boy that- and quickly they moved to independence <laughs> <laughs> this, this reminds me of his treasure digs where if it didn't work out it's because they did the the chanting wrong or they did somebody didn't have faith or things like that things of that nature the the treasure slipped away again it's 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 death by a thousand cuts with with the story when you're reading it i have also read rough stone rolling and he details most of the events that we covered here but he does not he does not cover some of the really uncomfortable ones and so it's it's important for someone who's investigating whether their faith in the church is true or not to have all of the information. So for those listeners out there that are still in the church, don't turn away on this book because you know it doesn't mean that you have to leave, but you should be aware of the full picture. Uh, anything, do you have anything else? I, I just love how she kind of, she weaved chapter seven together so masterfully showing that it's a complex issue that there are documented miracles that he performed and also documented miracles that didn't work out. Yeah. There's a quote in chapter one that I I just want to repeat um, or say it. Um, She says, it is not that the documents are lacking. It is rather that they are fiercely contradictory. And I think that's, she's just showing that very clearly in this book. I love the book. I'm already having so much fun reading it and learning a ton about Joseph Smith. Any last thoughts on chapter seven or on on the first section of this book? We covered so much information. Yeah, there's and there's still so much that like so many notes that we haven't even talked about. Just such, <laughs> yeah. There's just so much here. Yeah. And so so we kind of le- we leave this off where the church is just about to move to Independence, Missouri. I'm excited. I've already learned. I mean, we're not even partway through. We're 100 pages in. This isn't even. Yeah. <laughs> hundred pages in <laughs> of uh, like basically 400 pages of text and then the appendix afterwards. I've already learned so much. I'm excited to keep going and learn so much more. So those listeners that um, I know this was a little bit longer episode than I normally put out. Those that are still here with us. The next section we're going to do is we're going to go from chapter eight to chapter 14. Um, we'll cover those chapters. If there's something that you want to read along with us and, and comments that you have about about that section of the book, questions you have, something that you might want us to, to discuss, let me know, shoot a message. We can turn this into more of a discuss, discussion with the listeners than just a discussion with, uh, with uh, Juliet and, and me. Don't dismiss this book just because it might come across as anti. This is even members of the church um, are saying that this is one of the best biographies of Joseph Smith. Yeah, it, it's the definitive. It's the one that has the most information from from all the sources. But not only that, like in the back, I mean, get it, get it just for the appendix. Like, like frankly, there is so much information 
in the back of this book that it is is mind blowing. That's going to be fun to sort through. <laughs> yes, I love the the trial in 1826. I just have my notes everywhere. Yeah, so there's lots of really good information in there. Yeah, don't sleep on this book. Well, Juliet, thank you so much for coming today. This was a blast. It's been so much fun to have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to keep going on with our discussion. Again, for the listeners out there analyzing Mormonism, go find it on YouTube. You can go find her on TikTok. She always is posting excellent stuff, awesome insights that you can find from her. Thank you for that. And that's why I brought her on. Thank you so much for coming today. Yeah. So for the next section, we're going to shoot for the beginning of May for the next part of this to come out. Maybe it'll come out sooner, maybe not, but uh, it, it all depends on scheduling. Again, thank you so much, Julia, for coming on. This was a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to bringing you back for the next section. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. That concludes my first chat with Julia from Analyzing Mormonism. This was a blast to record. I had so much fun covering this, this incredible biography of Joseph Smith. If this is content that you enjoy, please like it, subscribe to it, leave a comment, share it with your friends, put it on blast while you're at work. Well, maybe not that one. That might get you in trouble or at least offend your neighbors. As I said uh, at the end of the interview, we're going to do these about once a month. So look for part two about early May of 2022. And wherever you find yourself out there right now, I hope that you have an excellent day. <laughs>